This is a unique podcast exploring the criminal justice system and those involved and affected. We'll educate and expose the public as well as potential jurors to what takes place behind the scenes of those who are facing the system. Your host owns a litigation support firm called Justice Technology Professionals, and he works on criminal and civil cases offering support to defendants and counsel. What you're about to hear is an open dialogue, opening the minds to the public, to what takes place in reality, as opposed to what you think takes place. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Justice Tech Pros Podcast. Here's your host, Dominic Crea. Hello, listeners. Welcome to our first episode of 2021, and it's actually our 51st episode podcast episode. Uh, Happy New Year to everybody out there. Hopefully 2021 pans out a little bit better than 2020. Although it's not starting off that way, I'll I'll tell you that much. Uh, It's been a while since my last episode, a few weeks. I was actually waiting for a few things to kind of inspire me and and they started coming along and I made notes as I always talk about and I wanted to have them build up a little bit so I had some content for the first episode of 2021. Maybe a long episode. We'll see how it goes. I, I want to apologize if you hear snoring in the background. That's my French bulldog. <laughs> He's actually out cold behind me. Uh, so if you hear that, sorry about that. I'm hoping you don't. I'm trying to uh, narrow the field of the microphone so it doesn't pick it up, but just in case. As I said, a few things I'm going to jump into and talk about, offer my opinion on. And one of them was sparked by, I was watching a 2020 show. I think it was last Friday. I, I can't remember. It was either last Friday or the Friday before. But the without getting into the gist of the show, it was based, one one segment of the show I found kind of interesting and it also parlayed into a lot of what's taking place online with the podcast with social media and it just got me thinking I want to share some thoughts on it and um, elaborate a little bit on it basically one part of the show they were talking about there was a family and this family was upset Uh, they felt that an individual should have been charged with a crime that had taken place, but there was no evidence against the individual. And when you boiled it down, it was just really the family's opinion. There was nothing to support the fact that they felt there should have been charges brought. It was just the opinion of the family, and I understand that. They felt strongly that somebody was guilty of a crime. But what I found interesting was what happened was, based on this family's opinion, they would go on social media, they would really start to slander this person, really put it out there that they believed this person was guilty. Then a podcast took place, and on the podcast, the host of the podcast would have episodes where he would focus on this individual. Now, this individual was never charged, there was no evidence against him. And yet, they were pretty much dragging their name through the mud. Now, whether they're guilty or not, I have no idea. 
but nothing supported that. This was just opinion-based. So somebody, if you look at it from the outside looking in, I understand the family is obviously, if they feel strongly about something, they're going to feel a personal way about it. They're going to feel a certain way, and they're going to be angry, and I understand that. But the correlation that I found that I want to express is this. They're going on social media, they're going on podcasts, and third-party podcasts were just having discussions about the theory that this individual was guilty of a crime and the family felt it, felt they were guilty of this crime and they were trying to piece together uh, certain aspects of what took place and trying to tie this person into it without any evidence, just really theories. And again, a lot of social media blasting, taunting, you know, as we all know, social media could get very nasty. So think about the comments of people that were in supporting the family. And on a personal level, I can understand it. But here's where it gets it gets tricky for me in the sense that I could see where it, it carries over and how certain things don't play out for certain people. And this is what I mean by that. Long story short, after all this was going on for... A certain amount of time, the person who was being accused of these things, obviously it was ruining his life. I mean, he's being slandered on podcasts, he's being talked about on social media, he, he's having his name dragged through the mud. So they filed a lawsuit, I think it was $45 million lawsuit for slander and I guess defamation against the podcast, against all the social media platforms, the the individuals' accounts on those platforms, everybody who took part in this. So it got me thinking. Here you have a form of social media, a form of podcasts, uh, all these different platforms where people are getting bashed, people are getting spoken about, stories are being told, and a suit is filed. Because it's it's not right. That's that shouldn't be allowed without evidence, without without some kind of supportive nature behind it, without a trial, without anything, without it, without even going through the justice system. This individual was getting basically tried and convicted through opinion. And what I found a carryover, where I found similarities, is what's going on now on a lot of these podcasts that take place, on a lot of these informant podcasts. If you notice, a lot of the informants will go on their podcasts and they'll be telling stories or they'll write blogs. Blogs are a big thing now where they'll write stories about people. They'll start a blog. I, I was sent the blog. I was emailed the blog about an, uh, that an informant put together where they're writing about different people. Uh, people that they knew and people that I guess they dealt with, dealt with, and they're they're making a lot of accusations. They're telling a lot of stories. They're they're really taunting them. I mean, they're even uh, saying things that is of a taunting nature, and they're bad mouthing these people. They're making up stories about them that they're claiming is true. Obviously, however, you're only hearing one side. You know, you're just hearing this person who decided to put together a blog and appear on podcasts. Uh, you're only hearing that one 
narrative. You're not hearing any opposition to it. You're not hearing anybody challenge it. You're not get, hearing any other explanation to it. So one, one opinion is being pushed, is being posted everywhere, is being talked about, about different people. I'm just referencing one specific article, but this is being done time and time again. And there's zero accountability for that. Nothing happens. Uh, on this 2020 segment, something did happen. They got, you know, they got sued for $45 million. I don't know how that's going to pan out, but there was repercussions for doing that. It seems as though when a, an informant is doing something exactly the same, I mean, going on social media, promoting blogs, going on podcasts, talking about stories involving other people who weren't charged with the crimes they're talking about. There's no reports of these alleged crimes that they're talking about, these alleged instances, incidents. And yet they're allowed to do all of these things with no repercussions. Wouldn't that be slander? Wouldn't that be defamation? And it really goes back to this double standard that takes place. Unfortunately, now we're seeing a lot of that play out on all different levels in politics and the justice system all over the place. All you see is double standard. And here's another example of it. You have somebody getting dragged through the mud because an individual wants to become social media famous and internet famous by trying to put together a blog, trying to portray that they have all this inside information. Again, it's one person's opinion. It's one person's story. You don't hear anything else but the one person because they created a platform for it. And yet there's no repercussions for that. So if you just go on, and when you think about that in day-to-day life, if you take somebody, let's say I want to abuse somebody. I want to go and and abuse a, a business. And I just start a a podcast just to abuse people, just to go on, talk about why I don't like them, talk about how their businesses are terrible, they're terrible people, I would bet dollars to donuts it'd be a matter of time until I get hit with a lawsuit. You can't just do something like that. Unfounded claims, just ripping somebody up, ruining their reputation. You just can't do something like that. However, I shouldn't say that because obviously it's taking place. Certain people can't do something like that. That's really what I should say. It's allowed for some and not allowed for others. I guarantee if I started doing that, uh, I'd give myself a week before I get hit with papers. And it just goes back to how in society, certain people are allowed to get away with whatever they want because they're working for a part of the government, part of being an informant for whatever reason. They have favorable terms given to them. Yet the average citizen isn't afforded that type of leeway and that type of freedom. You can't just go on a podcast or go on a blog and start bashing somebody without the potential of repercussions. I'm sure some people get away with it, but when you're on a a forum like that and you're, you're doing it so publicly... It's a matter of time until the normal person 
would have to answer for that and would have to take it down and would get some kind of cease and desist. You know, they'd get something to stop what they were doing to prevent a person who is being bashed from having to endure that, let alone their family. You have family members, I'm sure, listening and hearing that and reading that. And I just see these things play out and I don't think the public, especially ones who aren't obviously listening to these podcasts and hearing what's going on and understanding the story behind it, they're just reading it and taking it for whatever it's worth. They're not factoring in what went into creating that story. In other words, what's the person's agenda who's putting that out, who's writing the blog, who's talking about it on podcasts? Do they have an axe to grind? Do they have a personal vendetta against whoever their topic of conversation is? There's so many layers to that. And it goes, they go unscathed. They have nothing to worry about. No legal ramifications for doing it. Nobody's going to call them on it. And it's just free range. And when I saw that lawsuit on that show, it made me think, well, here you go. Here you have an exact same situation where somebody was being bashed, somebody was being the subject of a story, of an opinion, having their name dragged through their mud, and at least there, there is some kind of repercussion for that. Something does happen. There is some kind of accountability. They got an attorney. They had the attorney. They filed a lawsuit. Again, what's going to happen with that, I don't know. But something was put into effect to stop it. And even the person who was a third party, from what I understand, they weren't tied to anybody or related to anybody, they took it upon themselves to start a podcast in favor of the family who was accusing this individual of being tied to a crime. And again, I'm not getting into the personal side of it because I could relate to the family and the frustration if they do feel that strongly about something and if they do feel somebody got away with something. I I could relate to that. I'm a human being. We all are. We could relate to those different things, being frustrated But my point is, you just can't do something like that without understanding there's going to be some some issue with that. And you're going to have to explain yourself and you're going to have to answer for it. You may have to pay for it. I don't know. It all depends on what happens with the lawsuit, I guess. But you can't just decide to start these things, make people the topic of your focus... And you're bad-mouthing them and you're making up stories about them. You may believe them to be true, but it's only one side. Those are your stories. That's your interpretation. And that's if you're coming from an honest place. What if you're coming from a malicious place? A place where you're almost trying to get payback for something that may have happened. Maybe somebody, you felt somebody screwed you over. They felt somebody screwed them over. And now they want to try to get back at them. And they're using the tools they have available microphone, a computer, a host of a podcast, creating a website, writing a blog. They're able to use those tools to try to get back at somebody who, which I can't relate to. If you had something to say to somebody, you should have said it at the time. You're going to wait till now to air out all these things. Just seems very suspect, very convenient. And honestly, another example of the double standard that goes on versus who could do things and who can't. I'm pretty sure if the individuals who were 
the ones being attacked or having these stories written about them would then turn around and offer rebuttal or offer a response, something. If they did something in retaliation verbally of what they're getting hit with, it would be a problem. And the other slippery slope with that is being you're dealing with an informant, they don't have really the option of responding and saying, well, that's a lie, this is what happened, because who knows how things could be twisted and turned and and misconstrued. They may use that uh, if somebody gets annoyed and and they get aggravated and they get flustered and they respond in a way that's perceived as aggressive. It could be twisted and turned because you're dealing with an informant. The the informant's allowed to rip somebody apart, abuse them, make threats, actual threats. Based on the comments that they use, they'll say things like coming soon and be abusive to somebody. I don't know. It's, It's really just crazy when you think about it, how these things are allowed. They go unchecked. They're allowed to do whatever they want. But if the role was was reverse and somebody was making these comments towards an informant or started a podcast where they're talking about specific informants and they're talking about airing out, I guess, whatever, you know, airing out any stories about them or making suggestive comments on social media about them, you mark my words, they would have a problem. They would have a problem for it. It would be twisted and construed in some way to benefit where they would have a problem. They would have some kind of charges. Something would happen. But time and again, these informants on every kind of level are doing it over and over again. They're talking about people. They're abusing people. They're talking about how tough they are, how crazy they are. Everybody's a killer. They're all killing people. All the people they killed, they're the toughest in the world. It's comical. It really is comical. And the shame part is they're allowed to get away with it time and again with no repercussions. They could say whatever they want. They could spread whatever stories they want. They can make up whatever they want. And there's no accountability, once again, for it. And I spoke about accountability many times in all of my episodes, a lot of episodes, about accountability and how different people aren't held accountable, and some are. And I don't understand how the public doesn't see something wrong with that. I I shouldn't say that because I'm sure many do. But a lot of times they just don't get it. They see one side and you can tell by the comments left underneath these blogs and these posts. They're asking questions. They're enamored by it. They're so enthralled by it. I heard one podcast. I think it was about 20 minutes of each informant telling the other informant how crazy they were, how tough they were how much of a killer they are. It was, it, it, I honestly thought I was watching a comedy skit about, like, killers. Everybody's a killer. Everybody's an animal. Everybody's crazy. They're the craziest people in the world. We're so crazy that we couldn't even be part of a supposed organization. We had to become informants because we were too crazy for the organization. So I guess that means the organization of informants is crazy. It reminds me of that movie, My Blue Heaven, where all the informants hooked up (laughs) and they were all talking how crazy they were. That's what it's like. It's, It's ridiculous. And this is what goes on. This is what takes place. 
And they could go on there and bash people, talk about people, talk tough, talk how tough they are. It's a joke. And I've said this a million times, been doing this for a year. It's very easy to talk that way when you're in that position. You have, you're part of the, of the government now. You have the government behind you. You could say whatever you want. You have a free reign to say whatever you want, talk however you want, and pretty much do whatever you want without any repercussions. And it's amazing. It's just constantly how crazy and crazy and tough and how much of a killer everybody was. We get it. How many times are you going to talk about how much of a killer you are? Talk about something productive. I don't know. Talk about sports. Talk about something. Supposedly, they're always referring to how they're making a new life, they're building a new life. Talk about that. Have an episode about the good you're doing instead of how crazy everybody is and scary everybody is and tough everybody is and intimidating everybody is. Talk about making balloon animals. Uh, You found God, talk about Jesus. You learned how to meditate, talk about that. That transcendental meditation, talk about that. But to hear the constant crazy stories and killer stories. And the frustrating part is I get emailed these things and I don't even want to hear it. I don't even want to listen to it. And then I hear clips and it's nonstop of this and that. And, And unfortunately, I have to hear a lot of these things because I... As I spoke about, I do build a database. I have these things transcribed and I build them for the defense team, for future defense teams, for current defense teams, for appeal teams. So I want to see all these things being said. But man, they really turn into white noise. It's just constant comparison of who's crazier and who's done the more crazy things and who's the biggest killer in the world. It's pure insanity. And it just goes back to... Uh, you know, I'm going off a little bit because I, I actually find it ridiculous and then I start to vent on it. I apologize for that, but can't help it when you start thinking about how ridiculous it is. But my point just is, these things could be done without any repercussion. If the shoe was on the other foot, it'd be a big problem. As I said, I guarantee if I come on here and I start talking like that and I start picking somebody apart... And making up stories about that person, making up lies about that person, where I pick a business and I start ripping up that business. I don't have anything to support it but my word. I'm just talking about my opinion and I'm ripping somebody up, ripping their business up. I'm going to have problems, legal problems on my hands. That's just how life works. But yet that doesn't, that doesn't play out on the situations I'm talking about. And that's what is really something that the general public needs to be aware of. Future jurors need to be aware of. Future jurors need to listen to all these things. They need to see what happens after the cases. They need to follow and see what takes place when the case is over. They're all talking about writing books, all talking about the podcast. It's this false sense of fame that they believe they're going to obtain, that they're going to have. And that's, that's what's key. All those things are important. That's why it's important for the defense team to download these episodes, transcribe these episodes, take snapshots, download social media, download comments, whatever you could get for your defense team to help your client. That's what you got to do. And there's a lot out there. You build a big database, there's a lot of important information that could help. Could help with a lot of things. Help with appeals, help with a lot of things. 
Now, that kind of leads me into the next item I had written down that I wanted to talk about that I came across. These blogs and these forums, podcasts, they all kind of go hand in hand. You have people who start these blogs to talk about different cases, talk about different societies, talk about different organizations, and they get on there and they're just having discussions. But what I do notice, there's so many, so much information on there that's outright false. And what's disturbing, obviously we all know that, the internet's full of a lot of nonsense, a lot of it's false, you have to research and you have to verify things. But on a lot of these blogs, they spit out information as if it's fact and they have data and documentation to back it up, which they never do. And they put it out there as 100% accurate. And they'll put out such false facts that are so easily disproven by pulling court minutes, pulling up motions, things that were said. They'll say things were said at trial that were never said. They'll say evidence was given that was never given. And it just got me thinking about that. I understand it's nonsense, and I understand that's just what happens with the internet. But what is dangerous about that, and this is for jurors, future jurors, be very careful when you go on those blogs. You get picked for a case. You may want to do your research, even though the judge tells you not to go on the internet. I have a hard time believing people don't do it, but if they did it, I'll give the benefit of the doubt. Let's say they did it before, and they're in these blogs, and they're in these chat rooms, and they're reading all this information. They're going to have a lot of false facts in their head. They're going to have a lot of things and assumptions that are just completely inaccurate because they go in there and just keep it in your head. You'll never change that. That's always going to be. People are going to go on there. They're going to spit out a lot of nonsense. They're going to talk about things they have no idea what they're talking about. They're going to try to make themselves sound like they're in the know when they're really not. You're never going to stop that. But what I do tell the listeners and I tell the public what I want to tell you actually For your own self, think about that. Do your due diligence before you assume what you're reading is accurate or the person knows what they're talking about. The internet's a wonderful thing in a lot of ways. You could find supportive documentation to a lot of what you read, a lot of what you see. You could go on sites. They have newspaper archive sites. You could pull up articles. They have sites for the public where you could pull up court cases You could pull up motions. There's a site called Scribd that I like a lot, S-C-R-I-B-D. You could pull up a ton of documentation on there, a lot of different papers, a lot of different court documents. There's a lot of different things that people post on there, just people posting. My point just is there's a lot of ways of verifying claims. So before you rush to judgment, before you believe the anonymous blogger that's making posts, talking as if they're in the know, Verify that information. Look into it. I'm not saying what to believe, what not to believe. We're all individuals. That's your opinion. That's your prerogative. All I am saying is just use a little common sense. Before you draw a conclusion, before you make a determination on what you're reading on one side or the other, try to look a little into it. Try to do a little research for yourself just to see if the claims have any validity at all. Or if they're baseless. Because that's important. The day may come, you'll sit on a jury, you'll be part of a jury pool. 
And you don't want those things creeping back into your head and influencing you one way or the other if you happen to read them, if you happen to come across them. There's so many blogs out there. There's so many forums that I'm sure a lot of jurors do come across those things and then happen to sit on a case that's tied in. It may not be directly related, but it could be tied in based on the type of theme, the type of crime, whatever it may be. And I'm just telling you, keep an open mind before you you judge. Because too many times people come across very matter-of-fact, and then when you do a little digging, you realize they have no idea what they're talking about. They're just spitting out nonsense that doesn't even make any sense when you research it a little bit. From the outside looking in, it may appear as if the person's in the know and they know what they're talking about. But once you research it a little and you uncover a few things, you'll see it's complete false. They really are far removed or they're guessing or they're reading snigbits of of maybe testimony or documents. They're not, they're not reading everything, so they're just spitting out little info here and there to make you think they know what they're talking about. And the more I saw on these blogs, the more I realized how much of a issue that really is. You have so many people coming across as an authority on a subject that they really know nothing about. They're in these blogs talking about other people's lives, talking about other people going through trial, people's charges, and they don't take the time to research it. They don't take the time to pull up the court documents to see really what they were charged with, what they were faced with. They just start regurgitating this nonsense that doesn't exist, some theory that they just made up, and then you have others agreeing with it, and that just creates a snowball effect. And again, don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say. I'm not naive. That'll never stop. All I'm saying is I'm putting the burden on the viewer, on the intelligent viewer, on the, in, on the viewer or the reader who has common sense. When you're reading those things, just take that into account, that it should be researched a little bit. Don't believe it is gospel. Look into it. And then you'll know who's really supporting what they say with documentation, with fact, and who's just spouting out absolute inaccurate garbage. And that's very important. It's important just as far as wanting to know if a topic interests you and that's what you like to read about. You want to at least know what's true and what's not. You want to at least know the facts of what you're learning about. If I pick a subject that I want to learn about, I want to at least understand what I'm learning about is accurate. I don't want to have all these theories thrown at me that are opinions and they really don't mean anything as far as building a knowledge base or absorbing information. You want to make sure the data you're taking in, the knowledge you're taking in, the information that you're absorbing is accurate. And the only way to do that is to verify it. And I believe that's somewhat of a society problem in some respect. A lot of fact-checking doesn't go on. You see it all over in all different facets of life. A lot of claims are made. A lot of accusations are made with no fact-checking, with no supportive information to it. And that carries over into these blogs, and it's just, I guess, a society issue. And trust me, I try to practice what I preach. If I hear something, if I'm told something, I don't jump the gun on it. I, I verify it. I look into it. I make sure I understand what I'm being told, what I'm being shown. 
I try to digest it before I make a conclusion. And the key to make a, a proper conclusion is you want all the facts. You want as w- much information as you could get before you come up with your final determination. And that's all it's about. That's all I'm really trying to explain here. I'm not going to change anything. I'm not going to change how these forums work, how these blogs work, how these how social media works. I'm not saying that at all. What I am just trying to say is have those who are viewing it and interacting with it when they're reading something that they're interested in or they want to know before drawing a conclusion, before making an assumption, if you see a statement or you see a claim being made, try to verify it. Try to look into it. If somebody's talking like they're in the know, find out why they're in the know. What do they have to support what they're saying? What could they point to to back up what they're saying? And then go to the source. Is the source legitimate? Just all things to help you better educate yourself on the topic that you may be interested in. Because you never know when it may come into play. If you're picked for a jury. Especially if you're picked for a jury member. That's one of the main focuses of this podcast. Is I try to appeal to potential jurors. Possibly current jurors. Although they're probably not supposed to be listening to podcasts if they're on a jury, but (laughs) depending on the jury. But that's what I try to appeal to, just giving a juror and a member of the public, a member of society, something to think about. Just to be better prepared, just to make them a more informed jury. I'm not trying to influence how they think in any way, shape, or form. That never was my intent. Intend I have my opinion on things. I make my opinion very clear, and I always say I am not trying to convince anybody. That is not my goal here. I am simply giving my point of view, how I look at it, and who knows? Maybe somebody could look at things differently, open their eyes a little differently, change some bias they may have, change some preconceived notions. That's the whole purpose of this thing. And as I mentioned in the past, I don't know how much longer I'm going to keep going. I may go for a long time. I don't know. I take it episode by episode. That's why this episode took a little longer to put out because I like to make sure I have legitimate content to talk about. Topics that I believe the listeners will find interesting. Topics that I could expand upon. Topics that I have a strong opinion on. I could give personal insight on. And that... Hopefully, everybody finds entertaining in one way or another. And maybe they learn a little something, and in some kind of fashion, it helps. Whether it's entertainment value, whether it's insightful, or whether it's knowledge-based. Any way it helps, it helps. And that, that works for me. That's just fine by me. The other thing that popped into my head, all of these subjects kind of ran into one another. And one of them was the whole topic of protective order, orders, which I spoke about in a past episode. I don't believe I spoke about it in depth, but I, but I gave the gist of it, which is basically, for those who aren't familiar, some cases have what's called a protective order put on the discovery. So you can't discuss, the defense team cannot discuss anything that's in the discovery with anybody outside the defense team. You can't go into what you uncovered, What's on, if there's audio tapes, you can't go into what's on the audio tapes without with anybody outside a member of the team. And then even after the trial, that protective order is still in place, so you can't even talk about it. And I'm going to explain 
my the topic I wanted to cover in relation to that. It goes back to this whole podcast and how these informants are on podcasts. You, you hear them, after they're done with trial, going into everything, talking about items that are covered under the protective order, talking about things that they wrote down on their 302s, talking about items. Now, the 302 are the statements that's covered by a protective order. That's part of the discovery. They're going on podcasts talking about those items. Now, if I came on here, and and that's the frustrating part, because they could talk about all these things and put their spin on it. There's a lot of items in these in the discovery on all of these cases that would change a lot of opinions of people about a lot of these informants. You really see what they're all about. You see a lot of their crimes, a lot of their sins, a lot of their conduct, which let me tell you, it's despicable and deplorable, 95% of it. And the defense team cannot talk about that. We cannot go on a podcast. I can't come on here and start playing clips of audio from Discovery Tapes. Trust me, I would love to do that. I would love to enlighten the listeners on, on what really was said and then what a lot of these informants are really about. I would love to show videos that we have of arrests and video and audio tapes of jail calls, calling wives, calling girlfriends. I would love to play all that. I would love to give insight onto what onto the defense's side of things. They want to paint the defendant in such a poor light and make the defendant a, a, a low person, a person of low moral compass. Well, that's because they can only show one side of things and they could put spins on it and they could change the narrative. But if we were allowed to, to expose the discovery, there'd be a whole different outlook on a lot of a, a lot of what takes place. The system, those in charge, the informants, how the case was conducted. There's so much there. And I believe, honestly, that's why the protective order stays on. They don't want that getting out. Imagine I could come on here every every episode and play a new tape about each informant that's tied to all these cases. I could play all their jailhouse calls. I could play all of their 302s, everything that they've done, everything that they did. I could read all of that, read all the statements. Now, if I did that, I don't even think I'd be I'd get through one episode without having a serious problem. But my point just is, they're doing that. They're violating the protective order. They could paint it however they want, but those are the facts. They're talking about things that were part of the trial, part of the 302s, part of the issues, part of everything that's under the umbrella of the protective order. So I needed that explained to me. I need to understand why... Can the defense not talk about it? No lawyers could talk about it. No part of the defense team could talk about it. But yet, informants are allowed to talk all about it without any problems, without going back to court to say you violated the protective order. How is that possible? And how does nobody pick up on that? How is that allowed day in, day out? I don't know how that process works, but if I was an attorney... And that impacted my client, and that was related to my client. 
I would definitely look to do something about that. Because I don't understand how the defense team has pretty much a gag order on where they can't discuss anything, they can't disclose anything, even after the trial. They can't release anything. Do you know what kind of a clear picture of a trial it would give the public if the defense team was allowed to release all of this, the discovery? And I'm not saying just pick and choose. You got to release it all because that wouldn't be fair either if the defense only released what was favorable to their client. Release it all. If you have an innocent client, release it all. Show it all. Show the evidence they had, or should I say the lack of evidence they have. If you wanted to have a voice, your client was wrongfully convicted, and you wanted to have a voice for that, and you wanted to go over all the lack of evidence or injustice that may have took place, or the lies that took place, you can't do that. You can't expose that. How does that make any sense in any way whatsoever? But yet, you hear these stories on podcasts and in blogs, stories that should be under the protective order, stories that are part of 302s and 3500 material. They're being spoken about. They're being talked about. They're being written about. I can't wrap my head around that. I don't get it. And I don't have to say it any more than I already have. If I started doing that, I would have a serious problem. And you really want to do that. When you're part of a defense team and you have an innocent client, trust me, you want to do that. You want to show the general public what they don't know. You want to show them what they're not seeing. You want them to hear these audio tapes. You want them to see the true character of these supposed informants who are actually just liars. As I always say, if you're going to be an informant, that's one thing. That's, you know, your way of thinking. If you're okay with that morally, that's the type of person you are, then at least tell the truth. But when you go up there and you lie and you want to pretend you're an informant, you're not an informant, you're just a liar. So under that protective order, the the information that's being protected can expose that so easily. You'd be able to show the public all the basis for the motions And a lot of the motions, sometimes you have to actually redact them because it is under the protective order and they don't want to get it out. So the the public can't even pull it to see what the lies were, what the misstatements were. And don't kid yourself, that is all part of the protective order. I know they try to paint it under a different guise where they try to paint it that they're just trying to protect potential informants. And I spoke about this as well. I mean, this is the 51st episode, so I'm sure I spoke about it a lot. But when it's relevant, I like to keep driving the point home. And I do believe I put a different spin on it so it's not boring and it doesn't sound repetitive. If I don't, you could email me and uh, complain about it if you want. But I think I put a different spin on it where it does sound new and it sounds fresh and it sounds like a different perspective using a similar example. And when you have these protective orders and you're not allowed to elaborate on them, you're not allowed to talk about them, all you see is the one side, especially when you're dealing with a wrongful conviction. Think about all the different wrongful convictions out there, right? Now, at the end of the trial, when it was a wrongful conviction, did you ever hear anyone say, well, 
it wasn't a good conviction, but we got it. It wasn't really that strong. No, you never hear that. You know why? Because you don't know what the discovery was. You only see where the jurors failed and they wrongfully convicted somebody. And then unfortunately, 10 years, 20 years later, however long it takes, the person gets exonerated. But at the time of the conviction, I guarantee you, you pull those newspaper headlines. <coughs> excuse me. You pull those newspaper headlines. You'll, you'll see the most powerful statements and media headlines saying how strong the conviction was. I guarantee it. And then you flash forward to when they're exonerated, then what? How were those headlines so strong? How was that conviction so certain when now this person got exonerated, whether it was through DNA, whether it was through informants lying, whether it was through planting evidence, whatever it may be, everybody has their own unfortunate reasons of why they were wrongfully convicted. But my point is, when it happens, you don't see any of that. You don't see how it was a weak case and how the juries misread the evidence or didn't see what was really taking place. On all those 2020 shows, all those different shows that come out, I, I, I like watching those different things. And you always see, a lot of the time, they'll interview the jurors. And they'll show the jurors evidence, they'll show them something that they didn't see in court, that maybe the judge didn't allow in and whatever. And I saw someone the other day, and they had their face blurred out, they were a jury member, and I guess they didn't want to be seen on TV. And the reporter showed them something, and the juror actually said, if I would have saw that, my verdict would have been different. How scary is that? So that means there was a piece of evidence that didn't get in for whatever reason, whether the judge didn't allow it in. I honestly don't remember why it wasn't allowed in. But for whatever reason, that evidence wasn't allowed into the court, so the jury didn't see it. This guy said if he saw it, he would have had a different verdict. How scary is that? All because something wasn't allowed in. And the same thing works with this protective order. A lot of what's on that, a lot of what's in the discovery never makes it in, never makes it to trial because you have to fight before trial to get in what you want to get in. So there's certain things you may want to get in that you're not allowed to get in that work to your favor that for whatever reason, the judge may not let it in. And I think that's what's so frustrating when you're, when you're, working on these cases and you're seeing these things and you're seeing the discovery and you're seeing the lies and you're seeing the deception and then you can't even talk about it. Trial's over, you can't even talk about it. You have to be vague. You can't discuss why you're dealing with an innocent person, why you're dealing with somebody who's wrongfully convicted. You're not allowed to discuss it. You can't discuss the inconsistencies that are underneath that protective order publicly. Yet on the other side of the coin, these informants who are now done with the case are allowed to go on their 2020-2021 tour of relevance, where they want to be relevant, and they're discussing everything that's pretty much under the protective order without any problems, without any violation of that. And there's no nobody sees anything wrong with that. They listen to the stories, they listen to the crazy animal killer stories. They listen to them regurgitate things that they have on the 302s and the 3500 that's under the protective order. They're talking about, and there's no repercussions about that. They could just go on and on. 
Now, if that's the case, fine, but now let the other side talk about what's in the under that protective order without having any problems. You know that's not going to happen. You know a defense attorney or a member of a defense team or somebody in my firm or myself talk about anything in a case we worked on that was under a protective order? You know we're going to have a serious problem. Once again, the double standard. And this is going to keep going on and keep going on. And I don't know how to... The, the only way I could counteract it is doing what I'm doing on my small scale. And unfortunately, it's a small scale. In the grand scheme of things, it's a small scale. This whole podcast world, it's a very small scale. You may think you have big numbers, you have a lot of people, but in the grand scheme of things, it's really not. It's not a big audience, unfortunately. I, I wish it was, but those are the facts. That's the reality of it. It's not a big audience, but I look at it. A little differently. I look at it like if I get one jury member down the road who heard an episode and has an open mind and is looking at things a little differently than they would have had they not listened to an episode, I'll chalk that up as a win. I'm not on here to make money. I don't monetize the shows. I don't do anything to make any money with this. This does nothing but actually cost me money. But I do it for... The purpose of trying to educate the public, trying to even give them just a different perspective on things. Even if they don't agree with me, that's fine. But it helps sometimes to look at things from a different perspective. And then you could conclude, well, I don't really agree agree what he had to say, but at least it'll be in their mind. Who knows? Maybe it'll surface at one time. that They'll look at a situation a little differently. Maybe they will be in a jury and they'll take into account some of the things I said and understand some of the things I said and give that defendant as fair of a shot as they possibly can. Because that's the goal here. The defendants need to get the best shot possible. Without that, the whole system falls apart. And right now, it's falling apart. Defendants aren't getting that shot that they're entitled to. And that protective order goes a long way with hindering cases. When it's under a protective order, look at it this way. One case, let's say, has the protective on it, order on it, and now another case, an individual gets indicted who may benefit, let's say, from a prior case's discovery. You can't even share that. You can't even say, here, take a look at this. It could probably help your client out. Now, let's be realistic with each other. Do we think that the government agencies don't help each other with each case as it carries over? Do we think one agency or one office doesn't give another office the information they had if it could help their new case? We'd be very naive to think that, right? So why can't the defense teams do that? Why can't the defense teams all keep their discovery together and then hand it to one another? Okay, we're done. You take this round now for your case. Go through it. Hopefully it can help you with your defendant. Not allowed to do that because of the protective order. Can't even help one another. Defendants can't even help each other. Defense attorneys can't even help each other if their their prior cases have the protective order on it. They can't share that. How does that make any sense? Talk about handcuffing a team, but yet you know the other side is getting all the support they need. Every office, every agency is giving one another everything they may have had prior with a prior defendant, with a prior team, with a prior indictment. They're sharing all of that. They're just building upon it. They're adding to it and they're enhancing it. 
and the new the new defense team for let's say the new individuals who who've been indicted they're starting from scratch they're only getting the discovery pertaining to their specific counts when there could be other items other pieces of evidence that could help them tremendously maybe information on one of the informants carries over that they could have got from a prior case got the off of the discovery where they could catch them lying they could impeach them there's so many ways it could carry over but yet they're not allowed to share they're not allowed to brainstorm on that and again it just doesn't make sense these are common sense things that one would think would it was an automatic and i believe these quote-unquote tools are used as part of the justice system to limit the ability of the defense team. This tool of a protective order, I think it's used to limit the ability of a defense team sometimes to be as productive as they possibly could. Because if they were able to work with other counsel, with, with prior and past uh, lawyers and representatives and attorneys... To help their current defendant, it, it would make their defense that much stronger. And yet they're limited. They're limited because of, of that usage of, of labeling it under a protective order, and now they can't share it. And as I said, the other side can. They could share whatever they want. So right from the gate, a lot of the times, the defense team is already behind the eight ball and already handcuffed in that sense, where they have a jump start, the government, the opposition, the state, they have a jump start. They, they've been working with every different agency. They've been getting information from left, right, up, down, whatever they can to support their case, to build their case, which, okay, that's fine, but make it fair for both sides then. Give the defense the same kind of route to take. Let them call upon past counsel. Let them get the discovery, get hands on the discovery on past teams and past defendants. But once, if that protective order is on, you can't. If there's no protective order on it, then the point is mute. But very rarely, you mark my words, if you go on certain cases, high-profile cases, RICO cases, very rarely there's not a protective order on the discovery. They don't want the different defendants sharing and helping each other out which one would think is only fair, they're doing it, but the defense is not allowed to. So what's allowed for one side isn't allowed for the other. And it's always, you ever notice whenever I talk about that, it's always the defense side that isn't allowed certain things. It's never the other way around. It's never me saying, well, the defense is allowed to do this, but the government, the state's not allowed to do that. Where it works in favor of the defendant, that's never happened once. I don't think I've ever said that once, and I can't think of one instance where that happened. It's always the other way around. It's always where the government or the state, the prosecution, is allowed to do something. The agencies are allowed to do something that defense is not. That puts the defendant in a position that is not as strong as it should be. It's always the other way around. It's always reversed. And there's no problem with that. People don't see a problem with that. And I think the general public would see a problem with that if they were aware of it. But it's kept so hush-hush. People don't talk about it. And a lot of times you can't talk about it. As I was saying, if, if, if people from 
all the, not just me, if all different defense attorneys, defense attorneys who represented somebody that was wrongfully convicted or, or was convicted in a, in a manner that didn't follow the rules, didn't follow the Constitution, and they wanted to talk about it and they wanted to discuss the evidence of the case, they can't do it if they have that order on. So it prevents a lot of disclosure and a lot of transparency. And that's what I call accidentally on purpose. That's why it's done. It's done that way. So people can't talk, they can't compare notes, and they can't inform the public of what took place on the case. And that's why a lot of the times you get so many doubting Thomases, so to speak, where you get people right away where you say somebody was wrongfully convicted, they don't believe it. Let's be honest, the general public don't believe it. They, yeah, 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 okay, sure. They don't believe it. And why don't they believe it? Because you can't explain it a lot of the times. You can't explain it as thoroughly as you would be able to if you were allowed to share what you know about the case. When you're only allowed to share, say, 40% of a case, that doesn't give an entire picture. You know, that's leaving a lot out. And, and even then, when you're allowed to share 40%, if that shows a strong argument for a not guilty defendant, a not guilty verdict, imagine how much 100% would show or 80%. If you were allowed to divulge 80% of what took place, the public would really get, then they wouldn't probably be so quick to judge all the time when somebody claims wrongful conviction. Too many times you see people brush it off. Yeah, okay, yeah, all right. If he was convicted, that means he was guilty. That's just society. You see it time and again. And then down the road when they're exonerated or they win an appeal, then like, oh, I, I guess I was wrong. But the, always the immediate knee-jerk reaction of people and society, they just don't believe it. They believe if you got found guilty, you're guilty. That's just the way it goes. And that's another thing I think I'm trying to change little by little. I don't think I'll ever change it. But maybe I'll make them think a little bit. Maybe I'll, maybe they'll remember about the protective order. Maybe they'll say to themselves, ah, maybe there's a lot they can't tell us. Maybe there's a lot they can't share. They can only submit certain papers on, but they can't share it with the public. They can't inform the public of really what took place, of everything that took place. All the public could be made aware of is what's on public record, you know, the trial minutes. A lot of the discovery never make it to the trial. Either it's not allowed in or it's not presented. A lot of it is not part of the trial. A lot of it gets knocked out, won't be allowed. So they're not seeing the whole picture. And that's why they have that reaction when somebody is wrongfully convicted. I see it all the time. They doubt it. And it's a shame. They're doubting it because they're ill-informed. They don't have the full picture. Now, some people are just ignorant. They're just biased people. They don't want to hear it. They believe if you're... Italian, you're charged with RICO, that's it, you're guilty, you should go away. They don't care about the facts, they don't care if the charges are legitimate, that's just how they feel. Those are just ignorant, small-minded people, I don't care what you show them, and I don't really care about their opinion, it's irrelevant to me. A lot of those blogs have that type of mindset of individuals, and that's where they'll always be. They'll be on the blogs, in one breath, they think everybody's guilty, but in the next, they're on these blogs fascinated by people, so I need that explained to me. Because I find that fascinating. That really makes no sense to me. If you hate something, why you want to blog fascinated by it? It's 
like if I hated baseball, let's say, but yet I'm in every baseball forum and every group there is fascinated in talking about baseball, guys. Just talking about Mickey Mantle and Babe Ruth. But I'm telling you, I hate them. I'm telling you, they're horrible. This subject bores me. It's ridiculous. It's moronic. But I'm on there every day. When you look at my stats, I logged 5,000 hours in these groups. Okay? I made 6,000 posts over seven years. But baseball players are morons. I don't want to be bothered with them. But I'm going to be in every group and talk about them 24-7 and make 8,000 posts about them and ask what they eat for breakfast, ask what kind of car they drive, what their kids' names are, what their grandparents' names are, what kind of suits they wore, what kind of bats they use, what kind of gloves they use. But I can't stand baseball players. They're morons. They all deserve to be struck out every time they get up to bat. <laughs> it's, it's, it's absolutely absurd. And, and I'll need somebody to explain that to me one day too. They're in all these groups. And then when you try to give some information, give some enlightenment, their their knee-jerk reaction is always to abuse or to knock somebody. I, I just find it amusing. You want to be a member of these different groups and these different forums, but you, some people don't want the entire story. They want to believe what they want to believe. They want to put out there what they want to put out there, but they don't want the facts. When somebody hits them with the facts, they lose their mind. They become unhinged. They start to spiral because it's not the narrative that they want to hear and they, don't, they want to play out. And you see it time and again. And I think that's it for today. I think I covered what I wanted to cover. Until next time. You've been listening to the Justice Tech Pros podcast with Dominic Crea, one of the most unique podcasts on the internet, discussing the obstacles the defense team faces when trying a case, what goes on behind the scenes during pretrial and motion phase, holding defense attorneys accountable, making sure they're fighting for their clients, the difference between textbook law and how things truly play out in a courtroom, and everything in between. And everything in between. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show and we'll be back soon until then find us on twitter facebook and instagram at justice tech pros to email the show with questions and comments it's podcast at justice tech pros.com till next time this is justice tech pros podcast and dominic crea signing off